You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey gang, quick bit of housekeeping for you before we start the show. And this is only relevant to those of you listening to us on the Apple Podcast app or via Apple. So if you don't move along, as the great Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, nothing to see here. But if you do listen to us via Apple, listen carefully, particularly if you're an old school listener of the show. Before we became the Nat Coombs show on ESPN, when we were the NFL show, you would have got the show updated when we moved without having to do a thing. But that's because the old show had a divert put on it. So to check, you'll subscribe to the new feed because the old one is going to go pretty soon. Check out the Nat Coombs show. Search for it on the app via the podcast browse section or the store section if you're looking on the desktop and find our show and see if it shows whether you're subscribed or not. If you are, great, you're on the right feed. If you're not, hit subscribe and delete the old one. So head on over, not in your library, but actually onto Apple. Search the Nat Coombs show. Make sure you're subscribed to the feed that you find. Simple. Good luck. Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombs Show on ESPN. Good to have you with us. Shout out to all of you new listeners who've joined us either today or over the last few weeks. Great to have you on board. We're going to roll out the pods thick and fast through the off-season. Iron Mike coming up shortly. We're going to remember the great Don Shula. We'll talk about the international series getting cancelled, of course. Bad news, sad news. Realistically going to happen, wasn't it? We'll get into that and a bumper mailbag as well. We've got a ton of questions from you. I appreciate those. At the NC Show is our social media handle on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. So if you want to get questions in for future shows, that is the best way to do it. We push a lot of bonus stuff out there as well. Speaking of bonus stuff, we've got some great pods dropping next week. Great guests, uh, to be more precise. Neil Reynolds is going to be dropping by. Vernon Kay as well to talk sporting movies. Looking forward to catching up with both of them. But we will get straight down to business now. With the one, the only, Iron Mike Carlson. So, Iron Mike, let's get the most important thing out of the way straight off the bat. It is Ollie, the producer's birthday. Hey, happy birthday, Ali. Ali Boumaye. Ollie, happy birthday. Uh, he is, Mike, he, Ollie, you don't know how old he is because it's going to make us both feel very old. He's young enough to be my grandson. <laughs> He's young enough to be your grandson. I'm definitely old enough to be his dad. I think we worked that out. Anyway, happy birthday! All. Uh, I can see him blushing through uh, uh, through. This. I can hear him blushing. Yeah, okay, exactly. What's the old Uncle Buck line? You should see the toast. I couldn't even get it through the door. <laughs> uh, it's it's Nat Coombs, the guy who put the eye in isolation. <laughs> where, did, where did that come from? I don't know. Just pop through my head i love it thanks very much I'm hey looking, I was, actually we're you won't you won't see this if you're listening mm. to this on, on audio but i'm looking yeah. at nad's garden and exercise bike mm. uh, which has a cat <laughs> sitting on it but the cat can't reach the pedals the cat's more productive than i am on the bike quite frankly uh we've got a ton to get into we're obviously going to talk and remember the great don shooter we'll talk about the uh nfl uk announcement international series games are uh, not going to be held here we have got a bumper mailbag i'm mike i have bruises from all the bumps Let's go. I'm going to start with a, a bonus mailbag here because I think it's an important one. Almost as important as referencing Ollie's birthday at the top, but uh, not quite. From Will Thomas at the NC Show. That's how you get in touch with us on social media. He says, uh, Nat, can you get Iron Mike to sort out the decor in his office for Skype? <laughs> he goes on to say, pink paint and butterfly wallpaper are not befitting of a man of his stature. Um, yeah, I guess Will saw me on Al Jazeera a couple of days ago. Right. Okay. Al Jazeera World. Um, and uh, the the room I use as an office was a child's bedroom. Uh, now, I did not know that the walls were pink because I'm colorblind. Are you colorblind? Um, to red and that. green. I and, never knew um, you were colorblind, Mike. Yeah, That's and the butterflies um, are going to be hard to paint over <laughs> you know, unless I use a really dark color, which I don't want to do. So, um, 
as a master of procrastination, which the lockdown is bringing <laughs> well to the fore, um, I've, I've postponed painting the room. But now that Will's complained, I think I'm going to have to. Well, fair point. Uh, incidentally, master of procrastination, presumably that, w- that would be your, your boxing nickname. <laughs> the master, master of procrastination. procrastination. I'll walk in like Homer Simpson to why can't we be friends? <laughs> I love the where you're at right now with the picture in the background, which is so I, I didn't know you were colorblind, even though I've worked with you for about 15 years. Uh, and I'd never seen you in action before a couple of weeks ago. And you posted some, uh, one of your uh, images of you playing at Wesleyan on twitter and that is what is in the background right that's what's in the background yeah it's a very young very young me about to uh try to get past a second defensive back on one play (laughs) it's a great shot the sidelines as well and the animation on their face yeah the kid who's in in who's uh, visible in in the sidelines um is the uh uh, son of our freshman basketball our freshman football coach uh, varsity basketball coach and advanced scout in football uh herb kenny uh, when when we honored Herb at one of my college reunions, uh, at my instigation, I, I got to introduce him. And I said, when I was at Wesleyan, a lot of our coaches were funny, but Herb was the only one who was funny deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so, so it's been it's been in there in your uh, in your makeup for years and years. Uh, that, that sharp wit. Uh, speaking of Wesleyan, and we will get to down to business in a minute. But I I did a a video piece on the Halberstam book on Bill Belichick. Uh, for Gridiron the other day and looking into that and re uh, familiarizing myself with the book again was reading about Belichick his time at Westland of course and, and for listeners I'm sure most will will know but maybe one or two don't that Mike was a contemporary of Bill Belichick's at Wesleyan uh, what it was about a year difference I think is that right uh, no um, three I was a oh, senior three. he was a friend ah, okay. um, but there is a speaking of great old school images there is a, a brilliant picture of the lacrosse team <laughs> With both Carlson and Belichick <laughs> in, and Carlson big hair, big LA metal sunset strip. A- absolutely, yeah. Halberson does a nice job in that. Um, the guy who was the lacrosse coach when when Bill was there was called Terry Jackson. He was a phenomenal soccer coach. Yeah, that's at right. The D three level, yeah. and he had just he had just in, um, become an assistant when I was playing, uh, just for fun, basically. Uh, but then became the head coach rather quickly because the head coach the head coach who wasn't that great left, and taught himself lacrosse and depended on Bill a lot um, in, that, in that kind of uh, thing and built up a pretty good program there, which yeah. grew into one that won the national championship two years ago. The scouting report on Belichick is great uh, uh, on him as a lacrosse player saying he's not really very good, but he makes everyone around him better. Which I think, uh, that's about, that's yeah. about right. Let's get down to things. So we'll lead off, of course, with uh, Don Shula, the great Don Shula, who died on Monday, aged 90. Uh, more wins than any head coach in the NFL, of course, in the history of the game. 328 back-to-back Super Bowl wins. The perfect season in 72. And as, Mike, as Michael Rosenberg wrote in Sports Illustrated this week, he bowed down to no one. Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. Um, I wrote a very long piece for Patreon uh, the other day, uh, which I recommend, obviously. Um, but I was dealing more with Shula before his time with the Dolphins, um, you know, and what led up to that. And, and his coaching credentials were pretty well established there. The the one the one criticism, obviously, is that he didn't win many of the big games um, going back to his time with the Colts um, and NFL championships and losing the Super Bowl to Joe Montana. But he was, he actually had a winning record overall in playoffs only at 19 and 17. That's 36 playoff games, which is a lot. Um, and I had him when I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for gridiron on the top coaches of all time, I had Shula at seventh and in retrospect, I think that was, that, that was influencing me a bit more than the overall success because I had him behind Joe Gibbs and Chuck Knoll. And I would, I would certainly put him ahead of Gibbs right now, having written, mm. written the piece. And Knoll was one of his assistants at Baltimore with Bill Arnsbarger. Um, and he also had a winning record against Knoll career wise. I, I think I probably would move him ahead of Knoll into fifth place um, overall, but Bum Phillips had that great quote. He can take, he can take his in and beat urine and he can take urine and beat his, his in, you know, um, as to how good a coach he was. And, and it, it's true. You talk in the about sense. the pre, um, the pre Miami era. So something that struck me looking, looking back at his career, he started as a head coach, his head coach career starts in Baltimore. 
1963, and he was just 33 when he when he got that head coaching gig. And I think there is this, particularly with the Sean McVay uh, in the Sean McVay era, that people think that's a, that's a very modern thing that young head coaches being given the opportunity, but. His shooter doing it, you know, fifty plus years ago. Yeah, he he was a smart coach, and that was his reputation from the start. He he was a defensive back for the Browns, um, drafted by Paul Brown out of John Carroll. Um, and when he stopped playing, Brown traded him in, in one of the NFL's biggest trades, a ten for five player swap wow. um, to the Colts. <laughs> But he played for Weeb Eubank at the Colts, and Weeb was right. a Paul Brown assistant. Yeah, yeah. And then when he retired, he went and coached. Um, uh, for a year at Virginia and then at University of Kentucky for Blanton Collier. And Blanton Collier was another Paul Brown assistant. So he was well-trained in Paul Brown's coaching methods, which were way ahead of everybody else at, at the time. And um, he then went to the Lions and, and coached under George Wilson and then got hired by the Colts. When the Colts finally, um, when he finally left the Colts, um, he, um, he uh, replaced George Wilson in Miami. <laughs> so there's a certain kind of synchronicity in all of that. And ha- having said all that about him and, and about how well he turned the Colts around, turned the Dolphins around, um, what was such a good coach to the players that he had. In other words, not necessarily getting tons of talent and putting them in there. Um, I, I had two two thoughts about it. One was we underrate Bill Arnsvarger as a defensive coach and his relationship with Shula was a lot like Belichick's to Bill Parcells and Shula had his greatest success with Arnsvarger as Mm. his defensive coordinator in two in, in Baltimore, in Miami. And then after he left Miami to coach the giants and came back again, and Arnsvarger created the five, three, no name defense. He created the killer B defense. Mm. And that was a lot of what carried Miami through through um, a lot of their times. And when he left again, I think that was one of the big problems in the Marino era was that they could never put together a defense based on no-name players um, mm. like, Arns, like Arnsbarger could. And I don't want to take that on too far because you also have to consider that after the three Super Bowl appearances in a row, the World Football League came along and took Larry Zonka and took Paul Warfield and took Jim Kick away from their offense. So mm. had they not lost those three guys... Um, they could have done more. They um, could have done more. And, and that was partly because Joe Robbie was so cheap. You mentioned uh, Marino. <laughs> you mentioned Marino. Uh, of course, a, a, a seminal part of, of Shula's career, and ultimately they didn't manage to win a Super Bowl together, but played at times some exhilarating football. And I think it's worth talking about the adjustment that Shula had to make because Marino fell to them, right? Did, you know, from what I understand, and of course this was the era, like so many of our listeners right now, that we first fell in love with the game and, and there are so many Dolphins fans because of the, the Shula Marino tandem and that era of the Dolphins. And, but reading about it, Mike, so pre Marino uh, and, and certainly the way that Shula coached before that, how much did he have to change his approach and his philosophy and his style to accommodate and to work around Marino? Again, this, this all kind of fits in, you know, at Baltimore, he had John Unitas, but mm. when Unitas was hurt, he had his best season with Earl Morrill, a quarterback. And then, of course, the Dolphins in the undefeated season, Earl Morrill quarterbacked them through most of the season. He didn't need a great quarterback. And you can argue about Bob Greasy. You know, Greasy was not a Dan Marino coming out of college. He was a really great quarterback, but he wasn't a big arm kind of gunslinger type. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, what Shula would have preferred. But when Marino fell to them, they took it. Had they had a defense that could have kept up with that offense, I think they would have been champions again. And that's what I meant about the Bill Arnsberger thing. I think Shula was a great defensive coach, but he couldn't coach both sides of the ball. You know, as a head coach, he couldn't really give his um, full full attention to that and, and the sort of um, micro-coaching that, Ar- that Arnsberger did with defensive players. But, you know, they, they adjusted into a really powerful offensive team that you need needed to outscore to be able to win, kind of like a prototype for the Indianapolis Colts in the Peyton Manning era. And I think that's a really good comparison because the Colts rarely spend big draft picks or big money on defensive players, uh, you know, and, and they built their defense around getting a lead via, yeah. via Peyton Manning. So, you know, I, I think that's good. The other, the other interesting thing, which I hadn't realized um, or I'd forgotten was that he nearly coached for Donald Trump. Really? 
Trump, in the USFL, presumably. In the USFL, Trump wanted him uh, to coach the New Jersey Generals. I think this was after the 83 USFL season. And Shula was making 400000 a year coaching the Dolphins, and Trump offered him $5 million a year. Wow. So, so he was negotiating, but he wasn't going to move to New York. While he lived in New York, he wanted an apartment in the Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. rent free and trump didn't want to give it to him <laughs> so what <laughs> trump did was go public and say look i've got don shula as my coach it's all set we're just negotiating his living circumstances but everything else is good he's there and shula got so incensed by trump doing this to him and realized what kind of person you know trump was mm-hmm. and you know joe robbie was cheap but at least he was honorable <laughs> <laughs> and so he stayed with the Dolphins. Imagine how different history would have been wow, had he gone yeah. to the USFL God, yeah. on a team with Doug Flutie at quarterback and Herschel Walker as the running back. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Well, yeah, again, underlining or underpinning that that initial quote we said that he was he was no nonsense. There was a great story I I read. You'll appreciate this, Carlson. That uh, shooter, of course, in Miami, uh, and and in particular the the uh, the eighties Miami era with. Um, uh, with putting the city on the map, I guess, in terms of sports, more than uh, Shula managed to do that, I think, in the 70s and 80s, more than it. You've That's a really good it. point. Not being necessarily a, a, a city that is synonymous with, with sports. And in the, the heyday of this and, and the kind of pop culture connection here, Miami Vice, I know it's one of your favorite shows, was the, pretty much the biggest TV show in the 80s in, in the States. And Don Johnson, the great Don Johnson, was one of the stars of Miami Vice. Shula was introduced to Don Johnson at the height of Johnson's fame at the height of Miami Vice success. And he had no idea who he was. <laughs> and apparently, <laughs> apparently thought Don Johnson was an actual cop and didn't realize he was an actor. That's one of my Don Johnson was probably flattered by the comparison. Yeah, he probably yeah. was. He probably crime was. Story. Uh, you got to watch Crime Story if you want the great 80s crime crime series. Or, or maybe um, maybe uh, Hill Street Blues. Oh, Hill Street Blues. But, but um, uh, the, the, it's a really good point you make because Miami was never a major league city. Mm. Until until the Dolphins came along, no baseball. They were in the Florida State League. Uh, no basketball. Uh, no ice hockey. Obviously, um, it was it was just a sleepy southern town. You know, mm. a southern city. And you know, if we hadn't invented air conditioning up north, they never. You know, it still would be. <laughs> <laughs> Don Shula, one of the greats, uh, and uh, rightly leading off with him. We're going to get to the mailbag, Mike. Uh, but before we do, let's talk about the international series cancellation, which is no surprise. Uh, of course, but nevertheless confirmed this week. What does it tell you about the NFL's plans for the season? Um, first off, that they're making they're making solid plans, and they're probably they haven't announced it obviously, but they probably have contingency plans. And you know, I said I, I think a month ago on, on this show, and certainly somewhere else, that, that I thought cancellation of London was always the most likely scenario yeah. because there are too many things you can't control. And it's too different outside whatever whatever plan you come up with to cope with with the coronavirus situation. This is going to be outside that plan, and the same applies to Mexico City. So you don't know what the conditions will be in those countries, what the rules will be. So it's very very hard um, to do your to do your contingency planning that way. I think the NFL really wants to make a full uh, seventeen game season, whether whether they can do that in 32, well, 31 different, no, 30 different stadiums, um, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, and they probably aren't sure at this point, but I think that by going ahead and, and planning for that, which means planning for preseason activities, uh, for team training and stuff like that, they're going to be in a position to make that happen. And what they need to have for that position is the easiest possible way to change plans. If we can't play in Buffalo, can we stage, you know, can we stage sets of games in, in other stadia? Um, you know, maybe not NFL stadia. Do we have to go with empty, empty stadia? And I know it's a, it's a blow for us here um, because it's, it's such a key part of the uh, football landscape here. Um, it's a great, and it's a, it's a blow to the NFL because their international expansion has been really successful. Sure. It's, a, it's a money maker. It gets full houses. It gets them the kind of um, um, exposure that they really crave internationally. And um, I don't doubt that all things being equal, it would be back next year. Mm. You know, that my only worry there would be if teams decide that it's not worth the trouble having 
gone a year without doing it. Sure. But I think, you know, you know how the NFL is. If they decide something's worth the trouble, they're going to make it happen. They're very yeah. good at that. Well, exactly. I, I, th- I think that's a really fair point that it, it is a, a temporary disruption and uh, nothing to read into it more, more than that. But it's interesting as well. When you think about the, the early stages of it, 2007 and Alistair Kirkwood has, has, has talked many a time about the fact that it was meant to be a game in 2007. And then four years later, three, four years later, they're going to get another one. And it was, uh, the, the cards fell their way for the 2008 game to, to uh, come to London because it couldn't be held. Uh, I think Mexico is where it meant to be held and it couldn't be so it came to london right. uh, and of course every year there have been games and increasingly more and more in terms of volume so the disruption really after that that continuity and and, and that slipstream really in momentum is disappointing and, and it's just disappointing that that fans from all across the country and beyond look don't forget a lot come from europe to the yeah. games as well True. can't all get together which which we love, we all love, and, and it is uh, it is a shame that that isn't going to happen. But but understandable, nevertheless. Just one more on this, because I, the end of- yeah. But just I, I wanted to just say that the um, yeah, you know, I found it really interesting that if I'm reading the press coverage correctly, the NFL's announcement was pre-staged or upstaged by it breaking here, which I think came because they they had to obviously tell Spurs or, or negotiate or work with Spurs as to what would happen with the stadium. And football correspondents here have, have a lot better sources into <laughs> into one team's um, administration than, than even the even the biggest NFL insiders does into the commissioner's office. You know, the commissioner's office did a really good job of keeping all this under their hats until they knew what their plan was going to be. But as well, soon as it came over here, it was like, hey, guys. Rumbled. <laughs> well, on, a, on an associated note, actually, I think the rumblings are coming from Atlanta, first of all, and a beat writer – in Atlanta, seem to seem to break it stateside as well. There we so, go. There we go. Um, one more on this, Mike, and then, and then we'll get into the mailbag. The point you make about how logistically the NFL are going to look at staging a season, given the expanse of America and the fact that coronavirus is at, at different stages of advancement in different parts of, of the country, and that seems to be uh, typical of, of all uh, the the American sporting leagues at the moment. We've seen the NBA's plans, this Arizona plan for baseball, where they'll play all their games yep. there, and all these different ideas flying around. In the end, what do you think is is most realistic? As much as we can project forward, as much as we can anticipate, given what we know right now, is it likely to be there will be one fundamental base, so a, a collectively neutral territory that that all the teams will play at, or is it going to be a selection of cities that are able to host games? It, I think it has to. It has advantage? to be. It has to be a selection of cities if they go to that. Um, I think what you probably will find is teams, in effect, isolating. Um, you know, in in a in a hotel in their training area, wherever that may may be. So if they can get a complex with a couple of fields and um, and a few hotels, and you know, Disney Disney jumps out. Because um, mm. there are there are there are um, sports grounds on the Disney um, periphery uh, yeah. in in the park and on in Kissimmee and places like that. Jerry World as well has been thrown out, hasn't it? They build. Yeah. Them so I mean, those those would be possibilities, but I think they would try to keep it in say. Um, but but reducing travel is obviously a big thing. If yeah. you're not traveling, there's much less exposure. Um, now, the interesting thing would be if you test players before they come on the field. And if you test positive, you can't play sure. because obviously, you know, when you're going helmet to helmet with somebody, it's a great time to be swapping viruses. Um, and uh, so <laughs> that's, game that's, times, game yeah, that's, matches, that's yeah, something that, cool. you know, that's something that's going to be a, a game time decision or a, yeah. a last minute decision if they get everything else in place. But I'm sure if the players test negative and go into a, an isolated situation in their um, in their training facilities or whatever, that they should be able to stay, you know, to stay negative, um, you know, as much as that. I think it's about 95% um, effective if you use the right test. Mike, one of the things I think about the start date for the season, irrespective of anything else, I feel it has to be, the NFL have to be looking at this on the basis that the moment the season kicks off, they know that 17 regular season weeks later, even if they're playing games on Saturday, which they might do if the, the college season doesn't happen or, or, or break the games up during the week in whatever way to get them done. 17 regular season weeks, 
X number of weeks for the playoffs and then the Super Bowl two weeks after the championship games. And they need to know that the championship, the Super Bowl rather, is going to be played in front of, of fans. They need to, <laughs> I can't, in all seriousness, I can't imagine them pushing the button on a season. If there's any doubt that the Super Bowl would I don't be played. See how you, I don't see how you can consider that a, a fait accompli. Right. You know, so unless, I wonder whether that will delay things. Or do you think that I'm get, overstating you know, it? Do you think that yeah. they will go ahead with the season, even if they think there's they, a risk? Go the ahead Super with Bowl. the season, they will go ahead with the Super Bowl. I can't Behind see why closed they doors. Yeah, well, they'll go they ahead with to. it, but yeah. Yeah, I, if they have to, yeah. I mean, but I wonder whether that means... It's going to be a lot weirder than, say, baseball behind closed doors. Right, exactly. Um, or even basketball, you know. Um, but I wonder whether that means they'll delay. If they're thinking, well, we can't be sure about this in September, but actually, sensibly, if we start the season in November, then it's the, the probability is we will be able to play the Super Bowl in front of fans. Let's pause it. Let's wait until we can. I wonder whether that will be a, a factor in their thinking or they just go ahead. I, I don't, I think they won't mind extending the season a few more weeks because I think in the backs of their minds, they wouldn't mind playing up till March. Um, right. Beyond March it becomes a little bit difficult depending on what's going on with, with college sports and with the other, the other major sports who hit their playoffs in, in April. But it, it, it's, everything's the, I think everything's up and you know everything's a possibility at this point. It's going to be it's going to be um, whatever whatever works or, or whatever can can be made to work. I think is probably more more to the point. And you see the the field surrounded by all the workspace around it, and then the stands. You realize that we're playing on a soundstage. And, yeah, sure. And the fans are, you know, are 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 great, but not necess- not necessary for the game to be staged. And I saw that they're discussing the possibility of pumping. Crowd noise, crowd in, noise in, yeah, like the Amsterdam yeah. Admirals used to do in the in the World League, but they would pump it in while the other team was trying to call their signals at the line of scrimmage. I think we just get a version of what happened during the draft; those TV screens, but times that by a hundred and just have walls of screens yeah. all the way around and people just waving in the screens. Let's go full on dystopian. <laughs> and that that brings up another another problem. We're going to talk, I know, in the mailbag if we ever get to it um, about <laughs> um, about uh, you know teams drafts and and future prospects. I am firmly in the belief that you can do a four-week preseason without playing preseason games or playing one, perhaps, and you have controlled scrimmages between right. teams. Um, and quite a lot of head coaches would be for that, right? I mean, you know, we mentioned I, I think so. I, I think they prefer it yeah. because they're going to need more practice. Yeah, they're not going to have mini camps. They're not going to have rookie camps. Their players haven't been able to come up, you know, and train. And the good coaches, the ones who depend on coaching players up into their system, you know, Balt the Baltimore's, the the Pittsburghs, the the New Englands, the teams that that do that regularly, they're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, you know, if you've taken your draft with guys you like the look of who were were bargains or in New England's case reaches <laughs> in the fourth, <laughs> fifth, and sixth rounds, yeah. you know, you're depending on coaching them into your system which may be a fairly complicated one and you're not mm. going to get the chance to do much of that it is a great point and you know what i will i take the hint i've taken the hint. let's get into the mailbag because it is as our producer ollie happy birthday ollie uh, says it's a bumper <laughs> mailbag it's a bumper mailbag uh so let's start with freddie uh great name have the bengals asked freddie got any chance in a division with three vastly improved teams now remember before you answer this question i mike that ollie our producer is a bengals fan and it's his birthday so be careful how you answer it <laughs> Ali's birthday bumper mailbag is in for a big disappointment. <laughs> I, I think the Bengals will still have their work cut out for them. Um, I don't see a rookie quarterback coming in and taking that team. I mean, I can see them coming up, you know, by four or five games yeah. uh, if everything drops right for them. But I can't see them in, in that division. Baltimore is not only really good, but they had a really draft. good draft yeah. as well. Um, Pittsburgh is always dangerous. And, and if a couple of guys come through for Pittsburgh, um, you know, I, I think they could be they could be really good. They um, it, it was really – it was really interesting because uh, Hilaire um, got all the the kind of publicity when Andy Reid took him at the at the end of the first round. Ed, Edwards Hilaire, mm. but Pittsburgh took a guy I I think in the fourth, and I'm just I'm just trying to look it up here to see if I can um, if I can check on which which round. McFarlane, you mean? Which round it was? Yeah, not Booger. Uh, no. It was it was the it was the fourth yeah I think um, pick one oh two not Booger McFarland but the other Anthony McFarland who is basically the same guy um, except 
probably a, a little bit straight line faster and not as well um not as well uh built up and i know we had another um question about the browns in the mailbag yes um, so we'll leave it we'll, we'll hold fire on that i'm really glad you uh, are big on anthony mcfarland carlson because i uh, i picked him up in my dynasty draft and so now you've given him your seat of approval i think that he'll see some time i mean they, you know they've taken running backs every year for the last what four years or so yeah, yeah. So, so it's a crowded field but he gives them something that they don't really have which is an explosive pass catcher in the backfield right um and sort of picks up on the Le'Veon bell um you know being gone uh, speaking of which, Darren Rogers asked, with the Jets signing Frank Gore, is Le'Veon Bell done in New York? Gase obviously doesn't like him, says Darren, and this signing will only lessen his time on the field. Yeah, I think Frank Gore might be Ollie's grandfather as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it'll probably cut into his playing time, but um, it, Adam, who knows what Adam Gaze is doing? Yeah, right. you know? um, Gore is... I, I can remember you and I sitting there and I did a piece on Frank Gore, you know, just one of those little um, inside the huddle pieces when mm. before that title was stolen away by a certain other broadcaster. Um, and, uh, and, and just saying, look at what Frank Gore does. Look at him block. And we showed a couple of things of his blocking. Look at the way he runs and makes something out of nothing. Look at the way he bends this play to make, something out of nothing look at the way he catches the ball and uses his blockers this guy is a complete football player and that's why he's still there at his age you know he doesn't have the the burst that he once had coming out coming out because but he's so smart and he's so talented in in so many ways that you know he's kind of like the inverse of 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 uh, Le'Veon Bell, you know, right. it's like <laughs> right. if he had Le'Veon Bell's talent right talent, now, he'd sure, be the best sure. running back who ever lived. You know, if Le'Veon Bell had had his attitude, he'd probably be th- that way. So I think they can coexist in a backfield. I don't, I don't see Gore making trouble um, if he doesn't get enough touches right away. You got me thinking actually of a story uh, we were talking about the other day around John Daly, the golfer, and, and Tiger Woods. We were celebrating John Daly on a show I was doing as a, as a cult hero, which he's probably the prototype for that. And there was a tournament that Tiger and Daly were playing in uh, not that long ago, actually, so maybe 10 years ago, I think, 12 years ago. So Daly was, you know, his, this flip flop career where he's been up and down, up and down. And he's making a bit of a comeback. It looked quite promising. And after the first round, Daly was heading to the bar and Tiger was going to the gym. And, <laughs> and John Daly said, why are you coming to the bar, Tiger? And apparently Tiger Wood said, hey, if I had your talent, I'd be going to the bar too. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love that. It's, it's a great point you make about Frank Gore as well, Mike. I guess you can apply this to, to so many different sports. You see these players, you see it in football, uh, European football, I mean, that have – had to adapt their game the older they've got and the, the initial raw attributes they had that made them a certain type of player have faded, whether that be pace, often it is. Uh, and the really smart ones uh, adapt and, and, and pivot to a different style of play. And because they've got that sporting smarts, they're able to endure and they're able to survive. And Frank Gore is not the only player by any stretch in the NFL that has done that. We, we, I guess you see, often see at the secondary as well that certain corners change yeah their pace goes a bit safeties as well they yeah. read the game so well that they can it's good they can extend their careers it's beyond a good it's a good point and i think there's a comparison to be made between frank gore and curtis martin mm. because they both had big knee injuries in college which caused them to get drafted lower than they would have gone otherwise and i think both of them came back from the knee without the burst that they'd had before the surgery um neither was a speed you know a speedster to begin with but both very smart runners. Mm. And, and so Gore made the most of what he had, basically. You know, I mm. don't have a, I don't have a huge burst through the hole. Um, I can't do what Le'Veon Bell does and, you know, and dance around in place and then explode with one step. Um, I, I have to make, make the best of that. And when Gore comes up for Hall of Fame voting, which people are already talking about because there's not much else to talk about, um, he'll have the same argument as Curtis Martin. Mm. which is a long series of consistently really good seasons, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, without really having the, the huge monster seasons. And, and in the NFL in particular, baseball's the same way, any sport's the same way. Longevity isn't of itself an indication of quality. Mm. You know, Jackie Slater, for example, was never the best tackle. He was probably never the third best tackle in the NFL. 
people when he played, but he played for 20 years. Mm. So he was always good enough to be starting and, sure. you know, in the NFL for 20 seasons, which is a different kind of Hall of Fame argument, but yeah, it's a good, sure. it's still a, a really valid argument. I totally, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the longevity absolutely underpins the, the, the fact that you are exceptional. If you are playing it, surviving as a starter in the NFL for, yeah. for that long. What's then, the average career in the NFL? Three and a three half years. Three and a half years. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Let's go to Marley. Marley Silcott. Hey, Marley says, which team with a losing record in 2019 will have the best record in 2020? Ooh. Tampa have got to be in that. Tampa. Tampa's but, uh, guys. Tampa was what? They were seven and seven nine. And nine. Yeah, I think Tampa's got to be a contender there. Who else? Um, the Broncos and Raiders were both seven and nine in the West. The Raiders um, are a good shout. Yeah, yeah. Like so that. they should improve. You're you're kind of always looking. To, um, uh, the Cowboys were eight and eight, weren't they? Um, so they they don't count. But you you also have to look at at how tough the divisions are. Um, so mm. that Miami at five and eleven. Yeah. Um, uh, I, is probably got a chance to do, you know, to go to nine and seven or something like that. But, but you're right. I, I think Arizona were five, 10 and one. Yeah. Um, they've got a chance to go, you know, a bit higher than that. But I, but I, I'm, I, I think either the Raiders or the Broncos, but not both, obviously, because they have to play each other two times, um, are good shouts. And Tampa's probably a good shout because Carolina will be better, but not as much better. Atlanta, I don't think will be a whole lot better than they were. Cleveland six um, and ten. I know we're going to get to Cleveland, I guess, but they, yeah, they were. They've got to be. Yeah, in the but Cleveland's got a tough division. Yeah, um, sure, you know, it's, sure. It's just as tough for them as it is for the Bengals. Speaking of the Browns, uh, Graham Bailey asks, "How impressed was Mike with the Browns draft and the off season?" He has a follow up as well. Do you does he subscribe to the notion the Browns now have the best offense in the AFC North after that's, making that's the offensive a, line? That's a good question because. Um, they're certainly solid enough, you know, and, and, and with Stefanski coming in from Minnesota, you look at them and they could run two tight ends and two wide receivers like Minnesota did if they want to. Mm. And if they want to be a, a, a run first team, they can certainly do that with, with Hunt and Nick Chug. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering exactly what kind of offense they will have. Their offensive line should be good because Willis was a great first round pick and should be able to move in and start, you know, at, at left tackle if, if he has to. Um, so that gives him a solid offensive line. I, I liked um, the kid uh, from Washington, Nick Harris, who they drafted as a center guard um, who probably won't start, but probably might in a year. Um, and uh, I was really surprised undrafted. They got Kevin Davidson from Princeton who I was amazed wasn't drafted because I thought, I thought he would fit a lot of teams. Um, and I think because he has mini hands at eight and a half inches, that, mm. that was the main reason he didn't get drafted. He only had one year as a starter at Princeton. He was behind a couple of guys who were really good college quarterbacks, but no, no real pro potential. Um, and they have a, a sort of run, more running play action kind of offense. But, um, you know, I just thought they, they were really solid all the way around um, in, in this draft. They've got depth. Um, their defense probably needs to be, needs to be better. And um, I'm not sure that Delpit, that was the one question mark. Um, now he'll probably place mostly sort of single high safety mm. or, or, or even slot corner because the guy's a lousy tackler. And, and you don't want that in your safety, but it's, you know, if you've got one of these and they do, um, in the box kind of safeties, you don't really have to worry about that. If you've got a guy playing up high who can, who can be the, uh, the center fielder, um, this in, is in that Delta, their, their draft pick who slipped to the, what, is it fair to say he fell to the second round? I think some people thought he might go, he might go around one. I, I actually thought he would go round one, too, because mm. I thought there would be more of a run on, on safeties. Um, I thought Xavier McKinley would go as well. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, he slipped, he slipped because he's a bad tackler, basically, mm. and, and teams, teams were shy, shied off of that a bit. Not, LD, um, not ideal for a safety if you, <laughs> if you can't. But it's a scheme, it's a scheme thing, you know, if, if you do play him, if you do play him, back all the time he doesn't have to be a great tackler he doesn't have mm. to help out that much in run support he mm. can be a hang on and wait for help kind of guy mm. yeah fair point uh just one more on the browns mike taking out all the off the field 
uh, shenanigans and nonsense and everything else out of it. As a player, where are you on Baker Mayfield? Ah, oh, that's the question. <laughs> I mean, that, that really is. You, you talk about how well they've drafted and what they've, you know, what they've built up and OBJ and Landry at wide receiver, Kaderil yeah. Hodge that they picked up from the Rams, who I think has a lot of talent um, that needs to be developed. But um, the question is, can, you know, what can ba- Baker do? And, and he needs – he needs to understand what the system wants of him, and I think, in a sense, Stefanski may be a better coach for him than Freddie Kitchens was, simply because Kitchens Kitchens didn't know what would work, and I think Baker Mayfield, as a result, didn't know what, what would work. He's got limitations in terms of vision, and not so much vision downfield as vision in the immediate. Um, he tends to want to move and then look to get rid of the ball. And that, that's a real problem um, if you don't have an idea of why you're, where you're moving to, if you're not waiting for your reads to come. I am not sold on Baker Mayfield as a first overall value uh, as a quarterback for the future. I think you tipped your hand when your immediate response when I asked you the question was, uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you notice I didn't mention him as we were running yeah. through the positive sides of the Browns. <laughs> he was conspicuous with his absence there. Drew yeah. uh, Boyle's got in touch. Hey, Drew, he says, will the Patriots, led by Stidham, Jarrett Stidham, of course, the, uh, the quarterback, it looks like they're going to go with to start the season. Will the Patriots, led by Stidham, still make the playoffs next season? Asked Drew. <sighs> That's a tough one because Stidham is a factor, but not the only factor in that. They need a lot of things to break right for them. Mm. And they had a very strange draft, I, I've got to say. And, you know, uh, every time I think I've figured Bill out, he, he huh. then turns around and surprises me. But What do you make of I his do... comments about quarterbacks after the draft where he said, well, it wasn't the plan not to draft on a words to that effect? So he kind of indicated that. I, I think they have a, they have a fairly strict Dra- their draft chart is very small compared to most teams. They have a lot of guys they do not want to draft, even if they come up as being, you know, still available at that spot. And, and I think what happened was at the spot they thought someone was worth, they were already gone. Um, I thought there was a lot of possible with From. From was was a player they were linked with quite a lot, and he was available yeah. quite a reasonable price for them, but they didn't go. Didn't go yeah, for. there's another there's another factor as well. From would have been interesting because you would have had almost a from Stidham competition from the start. Right. And I think that they had decided going into the draft that Stidham was their quarterback. Mm. Therefore, they were not going to bring someone in, Andy Dalton. We talked about this with Andy Dalton um, on Sunday. Um, Andy Dalton was not going to come in to create a quarterback controversy for, mm. for Stidham. Stidham's their guy. If he doesn't make it, he doesn't make it. They can live with Hoyer. They can pick up somebody. Um, they might even pick up someone before the season starts. Who knows? You know, this could all be this could all be um, subterfuge um, of a sort. But I think Stidham's their guy. I think they like what they saw from him. They like his ability to lead and to, and to learn. Now they have to give him um, the weapons you know that he needs, which includes offensive line. Um, they need help everywhere. They they really mortgage their draft to take two tight ends one of whom I believe they would have been able to get without having to trade up and, and give away some other, some other picks um, that I think, I think cost them pretty heavily. Um, but they, they, they build for the future, you know, even, even without Brady, I think Belichick is still thinking more or less long-term, you know, having guys available who won't play this year, but will play next year. Like a couple of the linemen they drafted last year who better come through this year because um, they need the help. And, you know, when you're looking at the Patriots draft, the most fun exercise I had was trying to figure out if you could count, you know, for example, the Steelers, their first round draft pick was Minka Fitzpatrick. Would you rather have Minka Fitzpatrick or the guy they would have taken with the number one pick? Right. For the Patriots, their second round draft pick was Mohamed Sanu. Mm. Do you think last year was an aberration because Sanu had an injured ankle or do you think a 33-year-old wide receiver who's not quick off the line is not worth the second round pick that they gave up for him. Um, you know, I, I find those kind of questions, those are the kind I would like to sit down and, and, you know, say, Hey Bill, you know, are you really that sold on Sanu, you know, uh, as your guy, you know, I understood it like three, four years ago when you tried to get him as a free agent, but last year, you know, yeah, 
Uh, I think Brady really liked him too, which was, I think that yeah, it's a, I was about to say, I think that I reckon that had some bearing on it. And I guess that, it, you know, when you think of Brady's understandable uh, obsession of, uh, with, with receivers being smart route runners, understanding exactly what he wants to do, having no patience if they deviate even slightly from it, then on one hand, there are certain receivers in the NFL that you think, I mean, the moment they brought Sanu in, I thought, okay, that is just such a smart, safe play because he's such a smart, safe, safe yeah. receiver. I mean, it, yeah. it was a, a lock for me that it, it, he might not be explosive, but he would be a, a key part of that offense for that reason. And, uh, you know, what do I know? It didn't. didn't Antonio Brown. Yeah. Antonio yeah, Brown yeah, still yeah. out on the market, you know? Right. Hey, speaking of that, you mm. know what Don Shula's career coaching record against Bill Belichick was? Ooh, gosh. Hmm. So let's think about this. So as head coaches head to head. So yeah. all the Cleveland. Um, it was Cleveland, Miami, obviously. Yeah. I would say, well, this, this is obviously a trick question. Four and no, it's not, it's not no, trick it's at not. all. I was just surprised. It was two and oh. Two and oh, two. To Shula. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, I was surprised they only met twice. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was Cleveland, you know, Miami. I thought yeah, they sure. would have met, you know, three or four times. You know yeah. which coach he had the most trouble beating? Landry? Nope. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a trick question because it, it, it's a coach from the from the less glory years of Miami, from the Marino years. Oh, that Belichick had the the most. No, no, that, that Don Shula did, had the most trouble beating. Don Shula had the most trouble beating, but he was a Miami head. Oh, I see. Sorry, during the Marino years, yeah. I'm with you. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you met a coach at during the Marino years at Miami. I was thinking, who, who are you talking about? Um, mm, I would say. Parcells? No, Marv Levy. Marv Levy. Yeah, well, that Marv makes Levy sense. Was, actually, yeah. Marv Levy was 13 and 4 against Shula. Yeah, that kind of figures, yeah. I guess. And, and it figures because they were playing, yeah. you know, in those glory years in Buffalo. They were playing yeah, right. Buffalo twice a year. Twice, and, twice know, a year. Yeah. The, the four Super Bowls, yeah. Um, here's one from Lugs for you, Mike. Lugs asks, is it win or bust for Bill O'Brien? Win or bust for Bill O'Brien? <laughs> Well, that's a good question because he he completely controls the team. You know, it's like he's the general manager, he's the coach. He's he's got Jack Easterby, the the guy who was the morale coach at the Patriots, is like his number two guy. You know, r- running everything. So you know, hey, is that a TV uh, show, Mike? Win or bust with Bill O'Brien, with your host, Bill O'Brien. <laughs> wouldn't he make Wouldn't he make a great game show house? Host? He'd be great. You know, and and how many coaches can you know? can get away with going down the tunnel, you know, screaming curses at the fans and, and you know, flipping him the bird. I like Bill O'Brien. I would, I would actually, I would love the Texans to make the playoffs and, and for Bill O'Brien just to stick it to the haters. Because I know it, it's just, it just, it's just like shooting fish in a barrel right now, slating Bill O'Brien. And it's, I think a lot of the decisions that he's made, as we know time and time again, we don't know if they, they might turn out to be genius moves. You just don't, I mean, I know on paper that's a bit of a reach, but surely we've learned enough to, We've got to suspend judgment a little bit, certainly in terms of the draft and arguably as well with some of the free agency moves. I know that the Hopkins one was a real head scratcher, but who knows? Maybe there's something more to it than that. Let's wait and yeah, see what happens you, in the season. If you use that Sanu theory, getting Hopkins for a second round draft pick makes your draft before <laughs> you've even picked anybody. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's got Deshaun Watson, who's a real talent, who needs yeah. to be, you know, needs to be put in a, a real position to succeed. Um, and, and as, uh, as a so, so-called quarterback whisperer, I think that's, you know, got to be his responsibility. Um, yeah. More than anything else really is, is why that offense has not been better. All right. One for the road. I might one for the road from Mark Jones. Is Andy Dalton going to be like Frank Reich was to Jim Kelly, speaking of that great bills team and Marv Levy for Dak Prescott. And is the backup quarterback undervalued? So Andy Dalton's move to Dallas and how they're framing him as, I guess, a, a mentor, uh, and, and, a, and a very solid backup to, to that Prescott. What do you think of that, deal? Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of different things that in play here. One is, does Prescott sign a long-term deal with Dallas mm. and and thereby become their quarterback of the future? Now, Dalton can't be their quarterback of the future, but he could be a quarterback of transition mm. if, if, for some reason, Jerry can't get Dak signed. And, I mean, the Cowboys had a great draft. Um, you know, they, they've done very well in – in free agency, undrafted guys, you know, I, I think Jerry's done everything right um, this year, you know, and getting a, getting into isolation on his cruiser 
um, was, was a good <laughs> favorite move. part. Favorite part of the draft. But Mike, you say Andy Dalton can't be the quarterback of the future. He's only thirty-two. I mean, well, yeah, he. Well, okay, he could be. Um, and I again, I've said before, um, backup quarterbacks are a valuable commodity because most teams can't afford to pay for a veteran backup quarterback. Mm. Um, and it, you know. Even when you're in your rookie deal, if you're in the fifth year of your rookie deal, you get the transition number, which puts you up into a big payday. I think for mm. 30 million a year for pre- 30 million for one year for Prescott. Um, so, so you can't afford to keep two quality quarterbacks on your roster for very long. Um, you know, New Orleans managed to do it last year and they're going to do it again this year with Jameis, uh, because the guys took Cook took deals, you know, good deals to to play on a on a Super Bowl contender. They and and Bridgewater came in and won five games for them, you know, which is a sign. But most teams want a backup quarterback who will not lose a game for them. In other words, if he has to play, he he will give you a chance to win if you play well, but he won't throw the game away. Um, and this depend this doesn't this isn't only if he comes in in the middle of the game, but it's it's if he has to take you through two or three or four weeks of the season. Uh, and Andy Dalton is certainly that on the Dallas Cowboys in particular. This isn't the Bengals where Dalton comes back from injury and everything's falling apart around him. You, <laughs> sure, sure. you know, this is this is a team with a solid offensive line, with a yeah. great running back, with with now three really good receivers out there. A defense that has its problems but can be can be um, pretty good um, if they sort the secondary out, which is what they tried to do in the draft. So you know, this is a team where if if Dak Prescott gets hurt, you can say, okay, Andy, you know, it's, it's your game. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep it simple. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to put 30 on the board and we're going to win games anyway, you know? And um, I think, I think that's just a genius move um, by the Cowboys. If Andy plays uh, and does reasonably well, he can re restart his career. And I think that's pretty much what he's thinking of. Um, every year, a veteran quarterback who's a free agent is a valuable commodity mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, yeah. You know, a decent, a decent proven starter. And Dalton is a proven starter. I love the way you stopped at calling Jerry Jones a genius. It was a Cowboys genius. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed well, that. you know, I was wondering about that because I didn't mm. know. We hear so many stories about Jerry being talked off of picks mm. by his son, mostly, <laughs> sure. but, you know, by the scouting department and, you know, Jerry famously wanted, um, I think Johnny Manziel and they wanted to take, wait and take Travis Frederick. Uh, I think that was the same draft. Yes. Um, and they talked, they talked him out of it, you know, and yeah, yeah. Frederick and Frederick was great. God, yeah. He wanted Johnny football. I've forgotten that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I just had this vision of him on the yacht, um, kind of <laughs> like that, um, that story that story um oh, who wrote who wrote about jerry jones in um new york times reporter who wrote a book about about football which was really a sort of fanboy thing to tom brady and and uh and his encounter with jerry jones at, at the owners meetings where he's in jerry's trailer his his you know luxury mobile mobile home and and drinking whiskey with him and he passes out and Jerry leaves him in the trailer and goes off comes back and wakes him up and Jerry's still drinking Jerry's <laughs> and Jerry's taking like bourbon in in tumblers you know and this guy's kind of nursing his little uh, it's a very school. embarrassing story but it, it put right. Jerry in, in a in a whole new light I think I think uh, um, you know my one run in with Jerry was in NFL Europe preseason. And, um, you know, me and a couple, I was doing a thing with Sky and um, interviewing him. And Jerry said something about a guy who I think they had sent to the the league. And, and he said, well, you know, we took him in the only in the seventh round or something. So he didn't matter. And I said, oh, no, you took him in the third round. And Jerry looked at me like, <laughs> and just stomped off. It's like, you don't do that to <laughs> Jerry Jones. You don't, you don't contradict Jerry Jones. You work for Jerry Jones. Oh, brilliant. And Carl, the produ- Carl, the producer, is going like, what did you do? What did you do? Why did you say that? I said, I did. you know, it's like, it's like asking the scorpion why he stings the, fly, the frog, you know? It's, like, it's my nature. What can I do? Oh, brilliant. I wish that I had footage of that. I'm gonna, Carl Barber, right? I'm going to drop my line and see if yeah, he's still Yeah, the footage got, probably exists somewhere. Oh, I want to yeah. think that out. It'll go 
there, along with the uh, the rock and roll haired Carlson of the uh, Wesleyan lacrosse team, which we uh, brings us full circle to the end of the show. Always great to catch up with you, man. Uh, Patreon, you mentioned that earlier on Patreon.com forward slash Mike Carlson FMT. So uh, subscribe there. Uh, Mike's Don Shula piece, and what else is on there? Um, well, there's um, there's a thing about the uh, un- the uh, small college guys from the draft, and I'll I'll be coming back to it now and starting to catch up on the draft and the uh, the undrafts, which is always one of my favorite subjects because it's one that doesn't get looked at a, a whole lot. And then um, in the off season, then I start doing division by division previews. Um, nice. maybe not quite as complex as last year, <laughs> which they, they wound up being really long, <laughs> you know, like who's out, who's in draft, draft picks, undrafted picks, you Several know, stuff, you but I, now, but I was right them, last year about a couple notes. of teams. I was really pleased a couple of teams, a couple of players that I got, you know, really right. And, um, just to keep busy in the, in the off season, give people something to read. And it's a really cheap subscription, really worth it. It is indeed. Uh, Mike Carlson, FMTE, uh, via the Patreon site. So go and get involved, get subscribed to that. Carlson will be back very, very soon on the show. We are back next week, uh, dropping a couple of pods, actually. Uh, catch up with Neil Reynolds uh, of Sky Sports fame. Uh, and uh, Vernon Kay is going to be in the house as well. Uh, we're going to talk uh, NFL, well, actually sporting movies with him. Not just NFL movies, but sporting movies. So looking forward well, to- you shouldn't have told me that one because here I'll go. I'll bring in. Oh, I want to hear him. I want to hear Spot for my own mic. We're going yeah, to do my, that. My buddies did um, off the ball did one of boxing movies with Andy mm-hmm. Lee, um, and uh, we we agreed on the best boxing movie of all time, which Raging Bull. Raging Bull. Yeah, yep, I think everybody agrees on that. But um, he did five, and my my second and third um, yeah. are the setup with Robert Ryan, a sort of film noir um, set in the early fifties and fat city. It's not a Leonard Gardner novel. It's a John Houston movie with uh, Jeff Bridges about a couple of washed up boxers, you know, on, on the uh, tomato can circuit um, somewhere in the Valley in, in California. Great. Um, got to never heard us. It's a great, great movie. It yeah, is a super it. movie and uh, really worth seeing. Fat city. I'm writing it down right now, Carson. That is my, that is my nighttime being sorted. Appreciate that. Um, well, that's good. What, where do you have the Rocky films in your list? Rocky is a really good movie, um, partly because John Adelson directed it, um, Mm. not Sylvester Stallone, who who tends to be just a bit more cliched and and in his directing. Um, Stallone wrote it, didn't he? He Wrote the screenplay. Oh yeah, he wrote it, and he he does really well in it. I mean, he Mm. acts it acts it really well you know he did a lot of the like the choreography of the boxing he did um you know and and the setups and that kind of thing but you know rocky one plus x none of them really um really appeal to me um in the same way but i think rocky is a really good movie um and certainly certainly could be a top five boxing movie for sure Again, uh, we're going to wrap up going full circle. We uh, called I you love the, you, the, Adrian. I was going to say you were the what were the the master of procrastination or the master procrastinator? Wasn't um, wasn't Apollo Creed? And my favorite one, the Count of Monte Fisto. <laughs> <laughs> I, Rocky's got so many good lines. You know, it's like he gives that inspiring speech to the little kid on the on the stoop, you know, outside his house, and yeah. the, little, the little delinquent then goes. <laughs> my favorite line in the whole movie is cut me Nick yeah I can't cut. see cut me Nick <laughs> oh that's a good Stallone and here, here, here's um, my Rocky trivia question go on what's Rocky's dog's name <gasps> oh boy um, and if you get that you get the bonus question damn it I know this Carson I know this so oh. it's a football related nickname or a name, football-related name. Oh, it's, this is going to annoy the hell out of me. I can't. I, it's there, but I can't tell me. Put me on his the dog. Is named Butkus. Butkus, it is. Butkus. And, and he's got two turtles in a little in a little yes, plastic. He does. Yes, he does. What are his turtles' names? Oh. <laughs> if I didn't get a dog, I'm not getting the turtles. But it's, again, <laughs> no, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, his turtles are Cuff and Link. Cuff and Link, but yes, I remember. If I had ever had twin boys, that's what I was going to name them. 
<laughs> oh, brilliant. We promised Ollie it's his birthday. We'd be quick today, Mike. <laughs> oh, I'm gone, quick. We've gone way over. Well, quick-witted, um, quick-witted is almost as good as quick on the time chart. <laughs> the Count de Monte Fisto. I'm going <laughs> to have that in my head all day. Carson, look after yourself. See you okay, next time. Okay, you too. Happy birthday, Ollie. Great stuff from Iron Mike. He will be back very soon. You can count on that. As we said, Neil Vernon in the house next week. Looking forward to catching up with both of them. Many thanks, incidentally, to all of you who have left reviews on whichever pod site, uh, podcatching site you listen to us on uh, iTunes. Thanks to Keith, Gazza, Freddie, uh, Jez, David. All of you have been leaving messages uh, and uh, reviews on iTunes and indeed all of the podcatchers. We really appreciate that. Appreciate the support. If you haven't done that, by all means, go and drop a line there. It helps us out, keeps us uh, in the good books of the uh, top brass at ESPN. And of course, it puts a big smile on the face of Ollie, the producer. And what else would you want to be doing on his birthday, quite frankly, gang? Hope you've enjoyed the show. Plenty more uh, where that came from. We're back next week. See you then. Bye for now. Podcast Network.